This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Violence Post-Election. Burn, Baby, Burn. Season 5, Episode 9. 2020 has been marked by extreme political polarization, which has led us up to political violence. We expect the worst of each other. 80% of Americans live in exclusively blue states, where the governor and the state legislature are controlled by Democrats, or they live in red states with the governor and the state house controlled by Republicans. That's 80% of Americans live in states which are governed by one-party rule. And what is worse is an increased willingness because of lack of dialogue and interaction with the opposition to suspect the other party as having the worst and most extreme beliefs which they want to impose on the other party. And this extreme polarization has now led to political violence across our country, with the likelihood of it continuing after the election, depending on the result. How did we get here, and what can we do to turn it around? The COVID-19 pandemic, related lockdowns, and the recession in late March were the opening salvos of our year of discontent. The George Floyd killing in late May triggered a nationwide flood of protest, dredging up America's unfinished history of racial injustice and grievance. Those initially peaceful protests quickly transitioned into anti-government, anti-police protest. Calls to disband or to defund the police across the country fueled new political issues which took center stage in the Democrat primary season and later the virtual political conventions for both Democrats and Republicans. Black Lives Matter protests for racial justice all too often were hijacked by anarchist and Antifa. They turned violent, resulting in deaths, riots, looting, and in response, a rise in vigilantism by right-wing protesters who were often trying to assist law enforcement. In turn, the anti-law enforcement edge to the riots metastasized into a right versus left confrontation. One side supporting law and order, the other side calling for police reform. By the end of the summer, street violence began to abate, but the issues which had been raised and the taking of sides, left versus right, were not resolved. It was as if we transferred that unfinished business over to the presidential campaigns and the street fights continued in the debates, 
the TV adverts, and the worsening invective. The president talked about rigged elections when many states, and particularly California, the largest of the 50 states in terms of population, sent out unsolicited mail-in ballots to all of its registered voters. Democrats feared that the president wouldn't accept the result of the election if he lost, and that he would try to remain in power. Democrats, frankly, have never recovered from their PTSD of the Hillary election defeat in 2016, which has colored their views and policies over the last four years. They feared that the system was stacked against them, namely the Electoral College and an increasingly conservative Supreme Court. Resist became a popular battle cry. Thus, both sides have entered the general election campaign in a suspicious, distrustful, and angry mood, one that I've never ever seen in all of the presidential campaigns that I've been following since 1960 when I was a kid. And as a result, they've imparted that same distrust and anger to their followers and their party members. It's hardly surprising that some of their radical and extremist followers on the right and on the left have taken their leaders' warnings literally and resorted to gun violence. The two Antifa members in Portland and Denver who killed innocent protesters come to mind as well as the young vigilante, Kyle Rittenhouse, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Can that kind of political killing happen again if one side or the other is disappointed with the election result next Tuesday? You bet. In fact, it's more than likely to repeat itself. Political rivalry was amped up to historic levels of hatred, religious bigotry, and unhinged rhetoric with the nomination of Amy Coney Bryant, Barrett, to fill the Supreme Court seat of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In an unprecedented calendar, she was nominated, confirmed, and sworn in eight days before the election on Monday, October 26th. Her appointment cements a six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. The first such overwhelmingly conservative court since the 1930s, that is to say in 90 years. Emotions are running very high on both sides as we enter the last days of the campaign. And both sides would do well to tone down their hypercharged invective, which some of their extreme follows may act on and act out once we get past election day. There is growing concern that the very fairness of the election may result in a rejection of the result post-election.
Patrick Murray, the director of Monmouth University's polling institute, says, and I quote, there is a heightened level of distrust and there is a significant belief, particularly among Trump supporters, that he's going to win because the polls are wrong, unquote. If Trump indicates after the election that there was something wrong, and I quote, if he lost, I'd be worried about what his followers would do, unquote. A Monmouth poll released last month found that voters on both sides of the political aisle are suspicious of potential foul play by the opposite side. 78% of Trump supporters believe that Biden will cheat to win. 91% of Biden supporters believe that Trump would do the same to Biden. Murray continues, and I quote, We haven't seen this in the past. People saying before the election that they are disinclined to believe the results if they don't turn out the way they want them to, unquote. But concerns about election-related conflicts are not limited to any one political group. A poll from YouGov released in early October showed that 56% of voters, 56% expect to see violence in the wake of the November 3rd election. That is 53% of Democrats and 59% of Republicans. So it seems as though Democrats and Republicans are on the same page, at least when it comes to post-election violence, in that they both expect to see it. So violence expectations are equal now among Democrats and Republicans, which is another rather ominous sign and something which neither side should be accepting blithely. Local and state officials deny seeing any credible threats regarding post-election unrest but they are getting prepared with interagency drills to respond to any unrest. The Texas National Guard, for instance, has been moved into Texas's four largest cities, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Austin, just in case. Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot, said that her senior law enforcement personnel held an all-hazards drill just to be prepared. Other cities such as New York, Baltimore, and Los Angeles are recommending that merchants and retailers board up their windows post-election. In New York last Sunday, as a for instance, in a preview of what may be to come, Trump supporters were stoned and had paint thrown at them, and they were generally harassed leading to several arrests. Of course, if the results of the election are not known for several days, or the vote count is delayed, that could fuel suspicions and trigger violent protest. More than 70 million Americans have voted by mail thus far. But many states will not count their mail-in ballots before the polls close on Tuesday, November 3rd, leaving the final outcome and the final results 
delayed for many days in certain battleground states. Thus, the result of the election may not be known on election night, raising concerns that one or both candidates may try to claim victory prematurely or that one or both candidates or their followers are stealing the election. A report released last week by ACLED, which is the acronym for Armed Conflict Location and Event Data, identified five states that are at high risk for election-related armed violence for militia groups. And those states are Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Oregon. Of those states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin are all battleground states, and they're closely contested by President Trump and Vice President Biden. So that's another ominous wrinkle in the post-election violence forecast. Just last month, a militia group called the Wolverine Watchmen plotted to kidnap and put on trial Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. While the plot was foiled, it was a warning nonetheless. The report went on to identify five other states, namely Texas, North Carolina, Virginia, California, and New Mexico, as being at moderate risk for militia activity. And I quote from the ACLED report, quote, there is an increasing narrative and a trend that groups are organizing to supplement the work of law enforcement or to place themselves in a narrowly defined public protection role in parallel with police departments of a given locale, unquote. Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer have a reputation of providing backup and support for local police forces and other members of law enforcement. The report named several militias, nine militias, as being most active in the United States. The Department of Homeland Security, earlier this month in October, released its Homeland Threat Assessment and analyzed the risk for the United States presidential elections. They found that Russia will continue to use covert and overt methods to aggravate U.S. social and racial tensions to undermine trust in U.S. authorities, stoke political resentment, and criticize anti-Russia politicians. They will engage in media manipulation across social media platforms, proxy websites, and traditional media to exacerbate U.S. social, political, racial, and cultural fault lines. Again, these are the findings of the Department of Homeland Security in their Homeland Threat Assessment Report. Moscow's overarching objective is to undermine the U.S. electoral system and thereby weaken the U.S. through discord and division 
so that America becomes less able to challenge Russia's strategic objectives overseas. China plays a similar game to Russia, and Iran and North Korea are in the running too, but on a smaller scale than Russia and China. The Department of Homeland Security focused on right-wing extremism, and it states that the primary terrorist threat within the United States stems from lone offenders and small cells of individuals, including domestic violent extremists, the acronym being DVE, as well as homegrown violent extremists, HVEs. They cited certain U.S.-based violent extremists who have capitalized on increased social and political tensions in 2020. They identify this activity as driving an elevated threat environment through 2021. The DHS will continue to target such individuals, and those individuals will be targeting politicians and institutions and law enforcement that further their grievances. Specifically, COVID-19 serves as a rallying and mobilization focus for many of these. And in particular, I mean the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. And Michigan, with its very rather heavy-handed COVID-19 lockdown restrictions, Michigan comes to mind in this case. White supremacist extremists, the acronym is WSEs, come in for special mention by the Department for Homeland Security. They have demonstrated long-standing intent to target racial and religious minorities, members of the LGBTQ community, politicians, and those that they believe promote multiculturalism and globalization at the expense of the white supremacy extremists' identity. Since 2018, WSEs have conducted more lethal attacks in the United States than any other domestic violent extremist. Some white supremacist extremists have networked abroad to extend their networks. Such outreach may lead to a greater risk of mobilization to violence, including traveling to conflict zones. Other racially or ethnically motivated extremists could seek to exploit concerns about social injustice issues to incite violence and to exploit otherwise peaceful protest movements. Another motivator behind domestic terrorism poses a threat to the homeland and its anti-government and anti-authority read law enforcement, violent extremist. Think about the Boogaloo Boys, for instance, or the taunts that we heard on the streets of New York from the protesters when they said to the police, call them pigs in a blanket. Often, these extremists 
are motivated by anarchist ideology, and they have been associated with multiple plots and attacks, which saw a significant uptick in violence against law enforcement during 2020. This ideology is exploited by hostile nation states, and that's Russia, China, and Iran in particular, which foment disinformation and sow discord across the United States. They take advantage of large protests to attack government officials, government facilities, and counter-protesters. Their ideologies often are reinforced by a variety of online content, false historical narratives. How many times did we see statues torn down and cancel culture uh, of national holidays and national leaders, conspiracy theories, and political commentary? The white supremacist extremists represent from the Department of Homeland Security's perspective, a threat, and they are prone to political violence, along with anarchists who were present in Portland, Brooklyn, and Kenosha over the summer. In conclusion, political violence is not new to the United States, but our extreme polarization at this time, especially if it spills over into a post-election conflict over a disputed election result does not augur well and would lead us into uncharted territory. After the election, I will do a follow-up podcast on the results. My sources for today's podcast include the Department of Homeland Security and their Homeland Threat Assessment, The Hill, and USA Today. This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley, reporting from San Francisco, America's favorite city.